Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. When China's citizens are asked what they're most concerned about, corruption tops the list. Last year, 83% of Chinese citizens interviewed by Pew Research Center mentioned corruption as their top concern, ahead even of the wealth gap. It's a topic that exercises China's leaders too. President Xi Jinping calls it the biggest challenge to the party, a life and death struggle. What we just heard is a corruption rap featuring a spoken word performance by Xi Jinping. The catchy title of the song is The Deepening Reform Group is Two Years Old. It's the propaganda campaign for his anti-corruption crusade, and it ran on CCTV. The lyrics go something like, the deepening reform group is two years old. It's done quite a lot in the last two years. Tigers, flies, big foxes, catch, 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 catch. To discipline the party, we have to be self-disciplined. And then it has actually a clip of Xi Jinping himself saying all corruption must be punished, Every corrupt official must be prosecuted. This episode, we're joined by Minxin Pei, director of the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies at Claremont McKenna College. His recent book, China's Crony Capitalism, pulls no punches. Based on analysis of court judgments, it finds that no less than 84% of officials were promoted while they were engaging in corrupt activities. And in bribery cases, they were on the take for an average of nine years before they were caught. The book's subtitle is The Dynamics of Regime Decay. Welcome, Professor Pei. It's a pleasure to be here. Just how far along that process of regime decay are we now? The beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and regime decay is also in the eye of the beholder. Many China watchers have uh, different opinions on whether there is actually regime decay, or if there is regime decay, how far along this process has progressed. In my personal opinion, uh, regime decay is probably in the mid to late stage. In your book, you describe how control of rights over state-owned property was decentralized following Tiananmen without any clarification of ownership rights. And you write that the real rationale for this process was to provide the ruling elites maximum advantage to extract wealth from society. It seems to me this is a really shockingly cynical way to view uh, what happened. I mean, how do we know that was the motive and not just the, the result of poorly drawn up policy? Well, regardless of whether there was such a conscientious design on the party of the Chinese government, this is certainly the outcome. So far, we don't have a smoking gun, which would indicate that the Chinese Communist Party leaders thought about the potential consequences of this approach to property rights reform, and they decided to continue on this course anyway. So far, we don't have any documentary evidence, but certainly we see the outcome. And when you look at the outcome, this is an outcome that one can find difficult to say that is not in the interest of the ruling elites. Corruption at the grassroots in China is so prevalent. Uh, when I worked in a county government in rural Anhui, 
even the officials who try to stay clean, who were basically good people, would get dragged into drinking late into the night, visiting saunas or acting as bagmen for their bosses. Their reasoning was if they didn't join in, they would be on the outside, not trusted either by their colleagues or by their superiors, and be in danger of losing their jobs and thus jeopardising their families' livelihoods. Are you arguing that corruption is actually the glue that holds the whole system together? Or put another way, is corruption the raison d'etre for the regime in China these days? Well, there are two dynamics at work here. The kind of dynamic you just described is what I would describe in the book, which is called bad money driving out good money. In this environment, it is very difficult for somebody who is honest, who wants to be truthful to his principles, to be actually honest in his uh, daily conduct. The second dynamic is that with which the Communist Party maintains the loyalty of its own members. How can you incentivize members of the Chinese Communist Party? Uh, If you look at the pay of these individuals, it's dreadfully low, even though the overall compensation uh, is very decent for these people, uh, except it's the wrong kind of uh, uh, compensation. These individuals get a lot of in-kind benefits, <coughs> but very little cash income. So in order to incentivize these people, you've got to allow them to engage in some kind of corruption. So uh, in other words, corruption has been structured into the political economy and the governance system of China. When you talk about the way in which corruption is structured into the political system, I think some of the interesting examples that you you raise are about the purchase of political positions yeah. and the, the way in which this kind of ruthless logic of corruption really gives massive advantages to people who are corrupt because they have a big war chest of money they've yeah. already amassed. Uh, they have, you know, they can embezzle public funds. They can also reach out to private finances for more money. So they have all the systemic advantages against the sort of poor and honest official. I, I mean, gi- given all of that, How can the party sort of even start to think about cleaning itself up? Well, the party is certainly trying right now with Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign. And this campaign has made a temporary difference. We have to admit that in the last four years, the amount of corruption is certainly less than it used to. But the anti-corruption campaign cannot be sustained forever because the party also pays a huge cost. You know, there's enormous resentment at the grassroots level against the party leadership. And there's also passive resistance uh, as well. That's why uh, Xi Jinping finds it very difficult to implement whatever agenda he has. I think the real solution lies in making the whole system not only more transparent, but also uh, take away a huge amount of power from the party structure itself and give the power to the Chinese people. Your book is an extremely thorough dissection and paints a grim picture of regime decay. But I was left wondering if it isn't even worse than you portray in China, given that you're working from court numbers. 
The highest profile corruption case in my county, for example, involved a construction bureau chief um, taking bribes from a swag of construction contractors. And the official in this fairly middling county was known to have taken no less than 50 million yuan in bribes. He was notorious. Children would sing out his name and call him Wang Banyi, <laughs> uh, literally 50 million Wang. But when it came to trial, he was charged with taking just over 2 million yuan in bribes. Now, given these numbers are routinely watered down to reduce public outrage, is it possible that things are even worse than you portray? It is certainly possible. The problem we have uh, with working with those numbers, these official numbers, is that you uh, have to make several key judgments in deciding which numbers to use. Uh, Typically, you would get two kinds of numbers when you uh, look at corruption cases. One set of numbers would be reported in the media. Most of them are official media, but they do not provide the sources of the numbers. The second set of numbers is more official in the sense that these are the numbers contained in the court judgments. So in my own case, I try to give preference to the second set. Uh, And then if I don't have the second set, then I use the first set. But I have to say that in all the numbers in my book, I use the second set because I just cannot use a number, a random number quoted in a, in a news story and uh, uh, give it uh, the kind of credibility I would give to official numbers. Uh, this said, I have to admit that we should be very, uh, we should not, we should uh, give official numbers a grain of salt. Uh, because these numbers are negotiated between the individual, the discipline commission, and the prosecutors. So they may, the official numbers may not actually represent the true extent of the wrongdoing. So it is completely possible that the actual conditions are much worse than what the numbers would show. Coming back to the numbers, a few yes. years ago, you actually put corruption at at costing around 3% of GDP. So in figures that I saw from 2004, that would be $200 billion from a $7 trillion economy. But I mean, since then, the reports that we have had, you know, the figures have just snowballed, you know, that the amazing reporting done by the New York Times and David Barbosa on Wintia Bauer's family owning about an estimated $1.2 billion in wealth. And then some of the stories in your book in particular, I love the detail about General Xu Ho, who had a ton, a literal ton of cash, 100 million yuan in his house. That's 14 million US dollars just in cash, let alone in gold bars and jewelry. I mean, what would your estimate for the cost of corruption be now? There are several ways you estimate uh, the cost of corruption. One is to use where China stands in terms of uh, corruption as relative to other countries and based on international surveys. They're not terribly reliable, but they give you some idea. China is about average. China is better than about 55% of the countries. Then you go to another set of numbers, which is the World Bank number. The World Bank estimates is that on the average amount of corruption in the world is about 3% of global GDP. So these are the parameters, and they all point to roughly 3% of GDP. Mm-hmm. So 3% of GDP for China 
is uh, $300 billion dollars. Or $330 billion because it's an $11 trillion economy now. But let's remember, it's an annual cost, and it's cumulative. And also, it benefits a very small group of people. And that's why you do not necessarily have a conflict between the 3% figure and exposés in the press on the amount of uh, looted wealth by China's elites, because the wealth they have looted is accumulative. Minxin, you say that the looting involves a fairly small number of people, but the low-level corruption, and this is one of your really interesting chapters, looking at the buying and selling of positions at the township, county, prefectural, and provincial levels, my research on positions for sale in Bunghai indicated that 80% of department head posts were bought. But it wasn't a straightforward transaction. It required a lot of horse trading, a delicate dance around mahjong games involving the wives of the officials, supermarket cards in red envelopes. But how typical would this 80% figure be? Looking through the court documents, have you come across cases like that? Well, I have not seen a place where 80% of all the posts were traded. But I wouldn't be surprised because the... The prosecuted cases are among the most egregious, and uh, you uh, uh, and they may not cover uh, most of the positions. Uh, but I want to caution that when you look at the eighty percent that figure, you have to look at the amount per transaction. The amount the amount for a post is ridiculously small. That is, these posts are lucrative posts. My research shows that for a county uh, bureau chief, bureau director, they the median amount of bribery paid in the, about a decade ago was twenty thousand yuan, which is three thousand U.S. dollars. That's ridiculously cheap. So my conclusion is the amount of bribery constitutes only secondary source of corruption income for the party secretary. The party secretary gains most of his income by giving favors to private businessmen. They actually pay a huge amount for land, uh, state-owned assets, and other favors. Looking at other people's research, though, there was a Chinese scholar who wrote a fascinating PhD thesis called Zhongxian Gambu, or literally the central county. I, I read, it's a um, Mr. Feng. Yes, that's right. So Mr. Feng, or I guess now Dr. Feng, his research showed that when township party secretaries are looking to go from the township up to the county level, what they're engaging in is almost similar to a primary campaign in the U.S., in that they're not just buying off the county party secretary and the head of the organization bureau, they're pretty well buying off everyone at the bureau chief level. So everyone gets a thousand yuan or more, depending on how important they are, and thus the post is secured. So possibly in this 10-year gap, the extent of collusion and the nature of buying positions itself may well have changed. Oh, absolutely. I, I think, uh, again, if you want to do... Uh, uh, a study uh, using uh, data you have to uh, uh, you using the most up-to-date data and then using uh, I think much more extensive data in the case of the county then you can come up with 
uh, much more revealing results. The limitations for scholars like me uh, is that uh, you can spend a lot of time working on one county, like Dr. Fung uh, did. Uh, but then it's just one case study. Uh, uh, I think you, my own feeling is that you gain a lot more insights by looking at a much bigger picture. And then you come up with a, a data set that can tell you more about the whole country rather than about a, uh, one particular jurisdiction. So in your work, as you've been looking through these court cases, and you've been doing it quite systematically, looking at the sale of positions, land acquisition, collusion with um, private actors, this kind of thing. Uh, what was there that surprised you the most in what you discovered? Well, what surprised me most is that China has a very well-developed corruption market. And this is a market that the current campaign in China cannot destroy. Because this is a market that has its own system of valuing property, valuing protection service. It has its own system of discovering bribery price. And this is a, a market that works very well in me supplying corruption and uh, buying corruption. We actually have some sound of Xi Jinping talking about that corruption campaign and discussing how the most serious threat to the ruling party is corruption. He's talking about how the Communist Party has been fighting tigers and flies since the 18th Party Congress and how uh, the anti-corruption campaign is playing a deterrent role. Now officials dare not corrupt. They're unable to be corrupted. They do not want to be corrupted. And that the party is making a landslide victory against corruption. To what extent is the anti-corruption campaign more of a kind of a performance of going after corruption where the outward symbols of corruption, such as visiting uh, prostitutes, having fancy foreign cars, massive, lavish banquets, uh, those are the things that are being cracked down upon rather than the actual corruption itself. Yeah, I think the corruption campaign has accomplished the following. One is to drive corruption further into ground. That is, you don't go to fancy hotels, but now they all show up in private homes uh, where you do not actually, uh, and they show up at, in dark in other people's cars so you cannot trace. Uh, and uh, uh, they conduct business outside China. So it's, you know, we're not saying that it has eliminated corruption. Uh, it simply has made corruption uh, uh, in very different form. It has led to different forms of corruption. The other thing I would say that it has simply suspended trading in this corruption market. There's still demand. There's still, still supply. But the suppliers are not meet, meeting with the buyers because they know that the risks are way too high. So... Uh, the reason is that the anti-corruption campaign has not touched the source of corruption. The source of corruption is not some moral, moral failing of China's Communist Party members. 
the source of corruption is that these members, these officials, control enormous wealth, and their power is not monitored by a free press, by civil society, and uh, they are protected by powerful patrons in the, inside the system. So the incentives are there for them to use their power to grab a piece of this enormous wealth. And as long as that situation remains unchanged, I just don't see how anti-corruption campaigns can make a permanent difference. To what extent is it the performance of anti-corruption, and to what extent is it being used as a political tool to uh, neutralize people with other loyalties apart from Xi Jinping or kind of rival factions? I think serves multiple purposes. On the one hand, it clearly uh, satisfies ordinary Chinese people's desire for cleaning up corruption. Uh, at the same time, it also reflects the new leadership's sense that a new political order is being established, and the party's rank and file must get a message that they cannot be behaving business as usual. And suit is, of course. Uh, because corruption has been the glue that held the party together after Tiananmen, using an anti-corruption campaign is a very powerful weapon to get rid of people who benefited prior to 2012 when Xi Jinping became the general secretary. But then it's quite dangerous as well, isn't it? It's, it's dangerous for the party over the long run. That is, the party now is least unified since Tiananmen. Uh, it encouraged the kind of life and death struggle uh, reminiscent of the Cultural Revolution because since 2012, Chinese elites have realized that if you lost the power struggle, you're going to, lost, you're going to lose everything. And that was true of the Cultural Revolution era, and the post-Cultural Revolution leadership tried to put that behind them. But that has returned to elite politics. So that is very, very dangerous. I do wonder about this anti-corruption drive and the effect that it's having on the morale of the party's grassroots troops. When I went back to Anhui shortly after the campaign had started, one of the officials in Bonghai told me, being an official here couldn't really be considered much fun. No one respects you. And if they take away grey income that we've been enjoying for years, who are they going to find to do this work? Oh, yeah. I, well, I've asked this question to my friends, and I've got different answers. Uh, we normally would think that grey income constitutes a vital source of compensation uh, for local officials. Because, as I said, their cash income is completely inadequate for their needs. And given the kind of really hard work uh, they have to do, uh, nobody would actually do that kind of work uh, if you take away their privileges and source of great income. But at the same time, uh, being an official has such cachet in Chinese society. And some of my friends say, if you get rid of this group, there will always be others waiting to fill their positions. 
So we don't know. And it seems that even those who have been traditional backers of the Communist Party and the Chinese model really have great doubts about its ability to tackle corruption. Uh, we have this clip from the founding prime minister of Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, being interviewed about corruption in China. And he's actually talking in Mandarin. It's quite instructive to listen to because he's asked by the interviewer if corruption might change over time in China. And just, just listen to the way that he laughs in response. So that's Li Kuan Yu saying, in China, connections are the most important thing. If you don't have connections, you can't do anything. If you want to make connections, you definitely have to give out presents and red envelopes. It's that simple. So, I mean, he almost seems to think of corruption as something that's almost like traditionally inherently part of Chinese culture. Is that an issue as well? I think he's actually wrong. Uh, he views corruption purely in terms of culture. I think culture has something to do with it. Gift culture, uh, in a society where you don't have strong uh, formal institutions such as a legal system, then personal contacts uh, or guanxi connections do play a very important role. But the real source of corruption in China is institutional. That is, uh, as I said, had China... Uh, had an economy that is not 40% dominated by the state, corruption would be much less because the state political power cannot be converted into private wealth easily. One thing that comes across clearly in your book is that you spell out a logic of corruption in that everything has a logic. Businessmen buy prostitutes for officials, not just for the sake of it or by chance, but to build up trust with the officials. Or even in one case, you give a great example of the Hunan Transportation Department, where they yes. set up rules to reduce conflict between officials who've taken bribes from different businessmen. Yes. And they basically parcel out different percentages of the roads according to the rank of the officials. Yes. Three, three, and th uh, one third, one third, one third. <laughs> it's quite incredible then on the other side. Um, in the background, this is sort of something you just touch on, but I'm sure you have a lot more information on this. The role of these quasi-fortune tellers, Qigong masters, mystic types of all flavours in these corruption cases. One famous example you give is Cao Yongzheng, who popped up in the Zhou Yongkang case yes. with his hands all over hundreds of millions of dollars. How common was the presence of these mystical figures in the background for these corrupt officials? I'm so glad you're asking this question. Actually, the uh, one of the papers I'm working on right now is superstition and Chinese officials. It turns out that a lot of Chinese officials up to very senior levels practice superstition. One of the figures is that about 80% of the officials who are punished for being superstitious, 80% of them actually hire some mystic figures. They're, in Chinese, they're called da si, or masters or gurus. So that's quite prevalent. Uh, actually, the most uh, Cao Yongzheng uh, is one of the more well-known ones. Another very well-known one is Wang Ling, uh, who recently died mysteriously in jail, and he was connected with uh, 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 the former uh, railway minister, Mister Liu. 
uh, and uh, connected with uh, a string of senior officials and even very well-known Chinese businessmen like Jack Ma and very uh, and movie celebrities. Another dimension to corruption in China that you hint at in your book is that these officials can be the perpetrators of corruption, but they can also be victims in the sense that they aren't businessmen and they're often taken advantage of either by these shonky mystic types or even by ordinary businessmen who trick them into dud deals. They're the easiest of marks in one sense because as soon as they get involved in a deal, they report their success to higher levels. So when it turns out they've been ripped off, they go to great lengths to cover it up. This intrigues me because this kind of corruption is almost impossible to measure. And I wondered if you had any inkling of the extent of this. Yeah, I again, one of the messages, and I wish I uh, highlighted this message much more prominently in my book, is that in this whole story of crony capitalism in China, the greatest beneficiaries are private businessmen. Chinese officials, of course, they've reaped huge sums of money, but relatively speaking, their share of the loot is small, no more than 20% of a deal. Most of the wealth has accrued to private business people who colluded with these officials. So, I mean, you've said that in your estimation, Will, we may be in the late stage of regime decay. And I've seen elsewhere that you've also been writing about the possibility of a a transition from authoritarianism. And you've even kind of set a date on it. You've said perhaps in the next 15 years um, that 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 possibility of a transfer out of authoritarianism is, is is much greater than many people think. So you think the Communist Party really could be in danger, but it seems that you still have a very gloomy prognosis of what might follow authoritarianism in China. Why is that? The Chinese system is what political scientists call a post-totalitarian system. And historically, post-totalitarian systems, when they fall, do not lead to successful democracies. Because under post-totalitarian rule, there's very little civil society, and uh, corruption has also uh, skewed uh, social structure, very high levels of income inequality, and the combination of the two, and of course, enormous state uh, interference in the economy. And then as a result, you have a dependent bourgeoisie, uh, a capitalist class that is very closely connected with the state. Uh, So the combination of these uh, structural defects means that when a new political system is born after the fall of authoritarian rule, it is very difficult to establish a well-functioning democracy. Typically, it takes about 10 years for the transition to unfold and clarify itself. But given what we're seeing in China today, given the uh, power of nationalism, yes. what and how that is sort of gaining force around the world, what kind of post-totalitarian government could you foresee for China? Well, it could be a, uh, a restoration of kind of one strongman rule, even though the party is gone. Or if you want to be more sort of positive or optimistic, you can look at Indonesia. After Suharto's fall, 
Indonesia had about 10 years of relative chaos. But then some form of democracy was established and has stayed alive. But at the same time, I guess, there are many people who have been foreseeing the end of China for many, many years, and particularly in the post-Tiananmen period, people thought that was the end. And yet China has continued to grow and has continued to uh, become more wealthy and more powerful. Why is this time any different? When those predictions were made in the post-Tiananmen era, uh, you would notice that they were not made by really serious scholars. Uh, and they were not made on the basis of social science research. Today, when you take a look at the paper I just wrote, it's called Transition China, more likely than you think. Uh, the data are there, and the evidence is there. That is, when you look at the structure of Chinese society, Chinese political economy, uh, and look at what has happened to the Chinese Communist Party internally, then you can make a quite plausible case that many of the conditions are going to be increasingly ripe for a regime change in China 10, 15 years from now. So many thanks for coming in, Minxin, today. It's such a pleasure. Many thanks to our guest, Minxin Pei, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. I'm Graham Smith, and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes or SoundCloud, You'll also find show notes on Facebook to learn more about Minxin's work and his new book, China's Crony Capitalism, The Dynamics of Regime Decay. This episode was recorded in Horwood Studios at the University of Melbourne by Gavin Neighbour, with generous support from the Asia Institute and the good people at Xinhua Rezi. Head to their website to find mismatched shards of China, including essays, original artwork, and of course, our podcast. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Donta. Bye for now.